And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Coming up, a deep dive into why Bournemouth sacked Scott Parker as manager. I'm joined by Ahmed Shubal and Peter Rutzler, and we'll discuss the relationship between Parker and the players and his relationship with the board after the 9-0 thrashing by Liverpool at the weekend. And, of course, who next? I'm Mark Chapman. This is The Athletic Football Podcast. Bournemouth's defensive work found wanting again. I think every one of us is shell shocked, so um, bitterly disappointing scoreline. Probably not result because um, I understand that the challenges we face here today and at this present moment in time, there's no denying that we're, we're probably under-equipped to, at this level. I feel sorry for the group in that sense, a group of players, or honest group of players, but um, just need some help at this present moment in time. So, Peter, you used to cover Bournemouth for the Athletic, and now you cover Scott Parker's previous club, Fulham. So, we'll bring you in in just a moment. Ahmed, Bournemouth are your club now, your beat now. Um, why was he sacked? Plainly, because his comments uh, after games, particularly after defeats, uh, rubbed the hierarchy the wrong way. Uh, he would constantly, Parker would constantly refer to the team as being um, under equipped, you know, not ready for this level. And, um, you know, those aren't the kinds of things that I think anyone involved in Bournemouth, whether you're a fan, uh, a director, a player, you know, would, would want to hear. You know, it, it, was, it wasn't just after the Liverpool game as well. It's, it's, it's fair to say that this goes back, uh, this dates back to pre-season. And he made quite some quite explosive comments after the after the last pre-season game, which was a 2-1 defeat to Real Sociedad, where he basically said we barely have any defenders. I understand after speaking to people yesterday that um, owner Maxim Damon personally reached out to Parker after that, of the Sociedad comments, basically to get him to tone him da- to tone down those comments and to, you know, essentially act like a more a manager who's aligned with, with, with the club's principles. I think that 9-0 defeat comments after that were, were probably the straw that broke the camel's back. I think he was asked uh, if, the, if that 9-0 was the lowest point of the season. And his response was, I can see more, to be honest with you, which frankly is like a remarkably damaging thing for a manager to say. Is there a fine line between honesty and defeatism? I guess so. I guess so. Because a lot of the things that Park, a lot of the concerns that Park has had were legitimate. But uh, at the same time, the last thing you want, you know, to hear from your manager is that the squad is, is, is under-equipped because that has a negative. It actually did, from what I'm hearing as well, the, there were fears that his comments, his repeated comments, were beginning to have a negative effect on the players as well. And, you know, Parker is someone who last season was touted as a, a, a good man manager. He had a very sort of bulky squad that came up from the championship. And in order to keep everyone happy and sort of playing to the best of their abilities, he knew how to motivate them. I guess now his defeatist comments are, are, I guess, the complete opposite of that. You could say the writing was on the wall for a while. Take us through their dealings this summer and who they have brought in 
And maybe even had they strengthened back in January as well, if that's relevant. Well, in January, it was quite a hectic end of the window. There were five deadline day signings. Kiefer Morse, Ricky Dembele, Todd Cantwell, Nat Phillips and uh, Freddie Woodman. Of those players, Kiefer Moore and Ricky Dembele, the only ones still at the club. Uh, actually, Sirica Dembele is on the verge of a move, uh, a loan move to Besiktas, Turkish side Besiktas, and Kiefer Moore is being relied upon as the main striker for the for the majority of the season so far because Solanke was out of injury. Um, and the feeling when I spoke to people at the club last season uh, after that window was that um, those signings, as far as they were concerned, were uh, with a view to having them play in the Premier League as well. They weren't just short-term signings to get Bournemouth over the line. And at that point in the season in, in January, a lot of last season in January, Bournemouth were faltering in their promotion charge. They got off to an amazing 15-game unbeaten start to the season, historic 15-game unbeaten start to the season. And then during the winter, they suffered a bit of a slump. I think it was, you know, just three wins out of 12. Uh, and then those sort of, that deadline day sort of trolley dash, those, a lot of those signings ended up proving pivotal towards the end of the season. And Bournemouth early went on to lose two games. The rumblings of what, from what Parker keeps saying about the squad being under-equipped, it seems as though there is a disconnect there in how the, the club hierarchy and Parker both view those deadline day signings. But to Parker, I feel like it almost seems like those players aren't you know, ready for the Premier League. He keeps referencing the fact that the squad doesn't have the requisite Premier League experience and there just needs to be more. Uh, and there is a, a certain element of truth in that. But as far as the club are concerned, particularly because they they did well to keep hold of the likes of Philip Billing and Lewis Cook, Jefferson Lerma and Dominic Solanke, they felt like a massive squad overhaul like we're seeing with Nottingham Forest, for example, just wasn't necessary. And mainly because of Bournemouth's financial constraints, like they can't spend like Nottingham Forest have, even like Fulham have to an extent. You know, we're, we're seeing quite an ambitious approach to the to the market from Fulham as well and the, and the sort of names that they're they're linked with. But Bournemouth's transfer so far, so they've signed, uh, they made five additions, three of them are free transfers. So the three free transfers are Ryan Fredericks, Joe Rothwell and Neto, from, uh, the goalkeeper from Barcelona. And um, the two, I guess, transfer fees they've paid uh, were for uh, Marcus Tavernier and um, Marcos Sanesi, um, uh, Argentinian defender from Feyenoord who impressed in the UEFA Conference League uh, final last season. So I guess it's not to say that Bournemouth have been sort of stagnant and, you know, just sort of sitting on their hands, not doing anything, twiddling their thumbs or the rest of it. It's it's more of a case that I don't think Parker's ambitions or where Parker thought clubs ambitions in terms of the recruitment. I, I don't think there is particularly an alignment there. From what I'm hearing, it seems like when in the middle of the week in the lead up to a game, there was they were they were all definitely singing from the same hymn sheet. But uh, as soon as a defeat was around the corner, as soon as a defeat came and Parker had the cameras in front of him and the journalists asking questions, like that sort of alignment had gone out the window and he kept sort of undermining the recruitment staff, undermining the quality of his players. And after a certain point, that just makes the situation untenable. Peter, does this feel familiar? Yeah, I mean it it does to an extent. I think the the big thing towards the end of Scott Parker's time at Fulham was was misalignment, uh, which Ahmed was sort of outlining there between what Scott Parker necessarily wanted to do and what the club and the club's hierarchy wanted to do. I mean, at Fulham, different time of the season, Fulham had brought in again, I think about 12 players during their second Premier League, uh, mo- second most recent Premier League stay. Didn't spend as much as in 2018-19, but there were a lot of loan signings and I, I completely rechanged starting 11 and over the course of that season because those players had been used the players that got Fulham promoted had just sort of been sidelined um, a lot of these were still under contract 
Um, a lot of them have been key players for, for quite some time. So once it reached the summer, Scott Parker essentially was presented with a situation where he would need to sort of use those players that were sort of out of favour, weren't particularly happy either. I mean, this includes Alexander Mitrovic, of course, who, who fell out with Parker. Now, that suddenly led to one form of misalignment because you've got a club thinking we've got players here that have won promotion before, they can do it again, we'd like you to use them. The other factor was again to do with recruitment towards the end of that season Scott Parker would make a lot of guided subtle comments to the media about his views of the structure at Fulham um, their long-term planning in terms of recruitment and you know there, there have been questions about Fulham's recruitment strategy it's, it's overseen by the owner's son uh, Tony Khan who's uh, vice chairman and director of football operations but you know it seemed like Fulham had recruited quite well they had quite a strong squad that season and just those comments became repeated. And I remember reporting at the time that the hierarchy had just were, were pretty fed up of it, you know, that they'd become quite unhappy with it, with his comments, but then also just the fact that the team had been relegated as well. Um, and then we got to the summer where we had a situation where outwardly the club is saying we want Scott Parker to, you know, to, to lead us back into the, to the Premier League. But there was this Bournemouth shadow going on behind this idea that he, he would go there and eventually he did. But certainly there are certainly there are some parallels there. Um, there, are, there are others too. I mean, Ahmed could probably talk about it from the Bournemouth perspective, but just in terms of how Scott Parker's football was seen by supporters. Um, he did a brilliant job taking Fulham up, brilliant through the playoffs. Um, but the style of play wasn't always well received. And I think the same happened with, with Bournemouth last year. And that, and that doesn't help, you know, when you're when you want to try and make changes and, you know, Bournemouth do don't have the strongest squad at all this season and you can understand Scott Parker wanting a more competitive side or bringing in players that could help achieve that um, but it becomes more difficult when you don't have that you know the fan backing as well so certainly some sim- similarities for sure. Amen. Peter touched on those uh, on, on, on the fan sentiment after his sacking and I, I feel like the majority of fans are relieved because it, it, it did become a situation where it's becoming quite toxic um, you know the manager keeps coming out with this defeat with these defeatist sort of comments. Uh, it doesn't really bode well for Bournemouth sort of survival chances. It kind of makes Bournemouth almost like a sitting duck uh, to other Premier League teams, and it's just not what the fans would have wanted. Let's just examine the the structure that Parker was working in at Bournemouth, and then that will probably lead us on to comparisons with Forest and and Fulham, the other two promoter clubs, and then and then to the future of uh, of Bournemouth and who might take over. Peter, I mean, the season, the very first time Bournemouth got promoted from the Championship was an amazing season. And Eddie Howe, uh, Jeff Mosson, the chairman, and on, I used to have some great, great nights down there. They were a great club to deal with. But there was also a point whenever I went to cover a Bournemouth game, fans of other Championship clubs would go, well, hang on a minute. It's not quite just plucky little Bournemouth here. They've they've got some they've got some whack behind them financially, right? So there is an element of that. So that structure at the club, they have in the past had money behind them. Whether there's money there for transfers or not now, which we'll come on to with Ahmed, it's not all plucky little against the odds. Would that be fair? I think I think to an extent it's fair. I mean, Maxim Demon is is a rich man, and he has, as you said, he has invested in that squad, and he did back. Eddie Howe, particularly once he took over um, in League One, um, brought in some good players into in the Championship, like Sir Callum Wilson, you know, players that really sort of lifted uh, Bournemouth to another level. I think what's interesting is compared to now, I think the the sort of financial power within the Premier League, the power that's required to to compete, I suppose now, 
is just not something that Maxim Demon can do, or at least he's not as willing to do now. I think you know, in terms of his wealth, he's not he's not like a a Roman Abramovich sort of financial backer. You know, we're talking hundreds of millions is what the you know the, I was told when I was covering the club. So. I think when they first came up, they were they were able to invest, but they didn't they didn't spend a great deal of money. I mean, in that first season, it was powered by those that sort of got them up in that same philosophy, and a lot of those players Eddie Howe had taken from from League One to the to the Premier League. You know, I'm thinking of Charlie Daniels, um, Steve Steve Cook, um, Simon Francis. So there was that sort of uh, balance, and then then some some smart signings. You know, um, so Ryan Fraser obviously come to to fruition in the Premier League, and Joshua King. Who came in and added something? Nathan Ake, of course, Jefferson Lerma. So these were those two in particular were significant outlays. The sense now is one, it's it's a different world to compete in. I mean, even if you compare it to, to Fulham, obviously they're owned by Shahid Khan, um, and he's invested uh, more than four hundred and fifty million pounds. I think it's more than that now in Fulham, and which is certainly helping them punch above their weight. Um, Today, obviously, we're still in a post-COVID era with club finances. Demons had to sort of step in there and to keep Bournemouth going. The club are also trying to build their new training ground, uh, which they've restarted now, which I think is a positive thing for their long-term uh, future. Just with all that together, you then and then clearly the owner is not as, as willing to, to invest. And, and obviously for, for Scott Parker, he probably would look back on those previous Bournemouth years and think, well, there was, there was probably a bit more money there than there is now. And I think that's pretty fair to say. It's just again, it's just a different view of, of where the, where the, they want to take the club right now, and that's that misalignment point again. And then the structure that is there when we talk about the signings, Parker is working within a, a director of football model, is he? Yeah, so he is the head coach, and he works directly with the chief executive Neil Blake and the technical director Richard Hughes. Neil, Neil Blake, the chief executive, is more involved with the negotiation side of things, the financial side of things, and uh, Richard. Richard Hughes is more involved in the player recruitment identification side. Obviously, there's a bit of overlap in that, and they've got quite a good working relationship. But from my understanding, there is no signing that Bournemouth have made that um, Parker did not agree with. Parker definitely has a say in who is signed. There is a there is a quite a clear framework um, in that club that 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 they use when when signing players, and Parker is a big big part of that. And when I guess one third of that being Parker disagrees with certain. Uh, or maybe it doesn't sort of see eye to eye with with uh, with certain signings, or uh, in in the way that, or at the speed at which signings are made, then you know you start to see the problems in that. Have Nottingham Forest and Fulham hindered Scott Parker's cause even more? <laughs> um, I guess so. Uh, not for the first time with Fulham as well, because Fulham last season were playing a very very swashbuckling attacking style of football, which was in direct contrast to Parker's more, uh, I guess patient and pragmatic approach well which to be fair Ahmed they've tried to keep I mean on, on Fulham games that I've seen I haven't seen last night's win over Brighton but in the Fulham games I've seen they've tried to keep, they've tried to keep that swashbuckling going in the Premier League Forrest have thrown all the money at it and actually have played some decent football and been a bit unlucky Fulham haven't thrown anywhere near as much money at it as Forrest but but they give it a bloody good go so one of them spending a lot and one of them actually showing a bit of fight. Both of them don't reflect well, I suppose, on Scott Parker's Bournemouth. Financially, you can understand why there's a bit of a handbrake there, a bit of a reluctance to go all out because the club just simply cannot afford to be, uh, it would just be unsustainable for them financially to do that. 
But I do get what you mean in terms of playing styles, teams attacking more. There was a sort of, I touched on this in the piece, but there was a, a sort of a feeling that this 5-3-2 formation that Parker switched to this season almost handicapped the players and almost seemed like they were playing within themselves. Because there are some very expressive players in that team. You look at the likes of Philip Billing, who played pretty much as like a number 10 last season off Dominic Solanke, Jaden Anthony, Jordan Zamora. These are players who are used to playing attacking football. And to have them sort of sit back in a in a in a back five, a low block, deep sitting team, and counter attack when the, those counter attacking opportunities are going to be very few and far between, it almost seems like you know they are you know playing within their shells and playing at, at like a sort of a thirty percent capacity, if that. Demeanor is quite interesting, though, Peter, isn't it? Because for all I'm saying that Fulham have played a swashbuckling style, I can remember the first Saturday of the season, that half hour before Fulham played Liverpool discussing Fulham and Bournemouth on the radio because Scott Parker had made some quite, you know, we haven't got enough players comments. And Marco Silva had actually done the same. Oh, we've only got four we've only got four defenders, I think is what he said. We've only got two centre halves. And yet because of how they've started, he's perceived to be a bit more bullish about it, I would argue. Yeah, I mean I, I guess he probably has a stronger hand than Scott Parker does. Um I mean Scott Parker isn't really helped by the fixtures he had, of course, you know. That is one hell of a difficult yes. start. Yes. But again, I think it's what you see and, and the feeling around the place is, is, is different. I think Ahmed touches on it really well, has done in the pod and also in the piece too, about just the negativity at Bournemouth that sort of set in over the summer. Um, it was something that I'd heard when speaking to people around the club myself. And that's just not really the best way to start a new season. Now, outwardly at Fulham, Marco Silva was, was unhappy with the speed of their recruitment. You know, Fulham have recruited and have recruited better than Bournemouth have. Um, and he has been backed essentially pretty much in all positions and early. You know, Fulham traditionally tend to recruit quite late in the window, it means, and has contributed to their poor starts to the Premier League season. You know, they brought in some good defenders this year. Not that they've needed them because the back four from last year have all stepped up and also wingers and they've been unlucky with it with injury and uh, with uh, Manuel Solomon picking up a knee injury and Harry Wilson too which hasn't helped. But for Silva, he, what we see him say is they're not seemingly impacting on performances at all. There is still, from the group that's there, well, they've been performing very, very well. I mean, they, they've all bought into what he's trying to do. They're willing to go toe-to-toe to play quite an aggressive, physical style of play, which is entertaining and direct. And and they've picked up so many points. So they, there's almost this sort of great feel-good factor on the pitch and then the sort of uncertainty about transfers off it which almost doesn't you know it kind of think well the, the squad's good but um silver will point to the fact that you know there isn't that depth that they need particularly with five subs and things like that but it is, it is just it is a contrast because because fulham have had that good start and to be fair fulham's start to the season wasn't the easiest either liverpool arsenal um wolves brighton of course were, were unbeaten before before last night so they, they've still come into those games and they've gone at these teams and a lot of the players from last year have stepped up and I suppose that's the thing and that's again misalignments that's word again it's just how you see your squad you know it, there are players in that Fulham squad who didn't really get the same I mean it's stronger than the one Scott Parker had I'm thinking of the likes of Tim Ream or Alexander Mitrovic just didn't have the same performances two years ago under Parker whereas we're seeing now that they're really you know, shining and, and stepping up Bournemouth for example you know you've got players there who have Premier League experience but have been involved last year and will probably want to show that they can step up. And yet they haven't been able to do that or there hasn't been that same positivity and, and they just the results haven't come in. Again, it's easy because of how hard performance fixtures are, but there is that difference certainly in terms of 
backdrop to, to the request that they're making to, to the club's owners and I, and I think also a willingness on Fulham's part to support Marco Silva because of how well he did last year and whereas at Bournemouth there just hasn't been the same the same sort of backing What next then Ahmed? For the time being with Parker gone first team coach Gary O'Neill takes interim charge with um, under 21 coaches Sean Cooper and Tommy Elphick beyond that Bournemouth are hoping to appoint a progressive manager I guess in the coming weeks possibly for the next international break. The word progressive was... What does that mean? A manager with a style of football that suits their, the attacking players that they have, which I guess may be a thinly veiled shot of Parker, we don't know. But at the same time, it's... Yeah, the, the, the style of football that Parker was playing or wanted to play this season, um, it's, it's obvious that, that that was never going to get the best out of the players at his disposal. So as far as the club's hierarchy are concerned, they want a manager with an, with a very attacking... Uh, sort of swashbuckling style in a similar in a similar vein to Fulham, and hopefully they appoint they they, they hope to appoint uh, a manager um, before the next international break. Who that could be, I guess, is is another matter is another matter entirely. I mean, I know I've worked with yeah. Richard Hughes. You know, Richard Hughes is, has has you know got plenty of contacts in Italy. He mm. played in Serie A, didn't he? Mm. Played for Atalanta. So, are they? Do you think they will look abroad? Do you think they will look into? Um, I mean, you know, like MK Dons haven't had a great start to the season this season, but they were fantastic last season. And Liam Manning, who's the MK Don, Dons manager, has got an amazing reputation within the game already. I mean, are they looking... That's a hell of a risk as well to go to take someone from from League One. And I've no, I mean, I've just plucked a name out there because he is a progressive manager. What kind of market are they looking at? I'd say that anyone with a proven track record in a top league um, with developing young players and playing an attacking brand of football would be on the list at this stage. And they want them by the international break, did you say? Yeah, I mean, they hope to appoint them before the international break. The thinking is that, particularly with the World Cup around the corner, they could use that time because Bournemouth won't have many players going to, to that tournament. That uh, They could use that as almost like a mini pre-season uh, just to sort of galvanise the players and get them playing in a different style of football and just to get them to get the players to buy into what the, what the new manager wants, really. Will there be any more transfers between now and and the end of deadline day because the structure means that they can bring players in without having a head coach obviously from what i've been told that this obviously parker's dismissal doesn't change much in um what's the the the, the, the sort of transfer negotiations that are already taking place so their current plans haven't really been thrown out the window uh, as a result of this so yeah I, I should expect some at least two signings to come through they are still light uh, in central defense there are a, a few um attacking areas that they need to fill as well but I guess all of this does also depend on whether or not certain players leave as well because they've, they've got the a full 25-man quota and Bournemouth really cannot afford to have players on the wage book who aren't going to be in the squad. What do you both think is is next for next for Scott Parker because if he'd been if he'd been sacked on results I think there'd have been quite a lot of sympathy for him, Peter. Don't you? You know, as you've as you've pointed out, you know, Arsenal, Arsenal, City, and Liverpool in three of their first four. It would be, um, oh, come on, Bournemouth board. What? Well, you know, that's that's ridiculously harsh. And now that a lot of people are talking about his public comments and that not sitting with the board, whatever fans think, 
boards might now think twice before appointing him, mightn't they? I mean, he's a, he's a really nice player. Lots of people really like him. But from that business point of view, you you will be thinking, well, hang on a minute, he may get us promoted. You know, he may get us into the Premier League, but what might he say about us in public? That that will be what some boards will think. Yeah, I, I think that's that's inevitable after the way that the two jobs sort of ended with, with Fulham and, and with Bournemouth. I think if it was based on results, it would be incredibly harsh. And I think that's what, bodes well for him you know his CV is still very strong you know two attempts at promotion two promotions achieved but Bournemouth still started the season got three points on the board from those tough four games you know when you speak to to the players who sort of work you know with him and actually are involved you know they do they do they do find motivation under him they seem to tactically astute him and his him and his team um, so there is a balance there and I think you know with clubs looking at him we'll probably look at how it's ended at Bournemouth and then it's just about how they, they perceive it. You know, do they feel that he wasn't backed? You know, because when you actually see what they've recruited and you compare it to what's needed in the Premier League, it's it's not that much at all. Whereas, you know, maybe they'll look at with Fulham and, and the squad that they had and they were quite competitive two years ago, but then I mean they really should have should have kicked on and, and stayed up, but it just sort of fell apart in those those final weeks. So it's it is definitely just how that how people will, will see how this has ended and how much of it is important and whether that if you did back Scott Parker, then maybe you would actually get the results that you wanted. I, I think from his perspective, you know, I think he would want to go from Bournemouth to being a regular Premier League manager. And I think the way this has ended makes that much more difficult, especially considering the sort of the calibre of coaches in the division now that, you know, the... The, the, the less willingness to take any form of risk. So it may require, again, having to take another club up. But, you know, I, I, I do think the CV is still strong. Um, and I think it's it's just, you know, it'll just be a case of how they how, how people see Bournemouth ending and, and, and about how the misalignment, you know, sort of came to be. Was it a case that Parker had more an impression that there would be more backing? Or was it a case that actually, no, that wasn't the case at all when those comments were, were just, were out of line, were, were misaligned? So... Yeah, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see what, what comes next for sure. Ahmed? Yeah, it, I guess it depends on which side of the fence you, you fall on with regards to this, this fallout with Bournemouth. Um, yes, it's the second time this has happened in very similar circumstances, and that may rub some other clubs' hierarchies the wrong way. You know, there is the Premier League just keeps getting better in terms of managerial personnel and player personnel every season. The fact that this is Bob Parker's second time leaving a club in these circumstances in the middle of the season with everything up in the air as it is, it, it doesn't really bode well for his chances of being a Premier League manager anytime soon. Great to have you both on. Ahmed, Peter, thank you very much. Talk again soon, presumably, Ahmed, when Bournemouth appoint a new manager. Probably, yeah. See you then. <laughs> <laughs> so for more on this and the very latest news as the summer window reaches a climax, head to The Athletic. Subscribe for just a pound a month for the first six months. Go to theathletic.com slash football pod. Thanks for listening. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.